Great form by you hitting play on this podcast. Now, check out Same Racer, the brand new racing app for Same Race multi-tips. Same Racer. Download from the App Store and Google Play. Powered by Bluebet. Gamble responsibly. Call 1-800-858-858. This is Bleeding Black. Ricardo Ball, Steve Devine with you. We're talking the All Blacks, talking the England game, the Northern Tour, and uh, looking forward to next year's Rugby World Cup as well. I'm another man who will be uh, thinking about all of that and more, I'm sure, busy scribbling away, as he does as the Chief Rugby Writer for the Daily Mail. It is Chris Foy. G'day, Chris. How are you? Morning, guys. Good. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, mate. Good. Uh, uh, got, to, got to ask you the question, mate. Um, what was your reaction? Put the pen away for a minute. Your reaction as an England rugby fan with the momentum you had in that last 10 minutes to kicking the ball out uh, to finish the game as a draw and not going for the win? Oh, it was just a, a, another crazy twist on a crazy end to the game, wasn't it? Um, you know, I, I think there was a lot of uproar amongst English fans about it. Uh, I think most people would like to have seen them go for it. They've just been sort of explaining it afterwards and saying they're very concerned about the referee giving a lot of penalties against uh, rucks against the team who had the ball. So they were concerned about the risk if they didn't get a, a sort of positive position. So basically they calculated it on the risk based on where they received the ball from the kickoff and decided it was too much danger of uh, throwing it all away. I think, of course... Those of us not involved in that decision-making process would always love to see the sort of uh, the bold, daring approach. Yeah, it was it was a bit of a head scratcher that one. Where where were the English team for the first seventy minutes? Nowhere, absolutely <laughs> nowhere. I mean, barely existing. They, they, you know, the the All Blacks blew them away. The All Blacks were absolutely outstanding for long periods of that. Certainly, the first half and periods in the second half. They were very smart with the way they were cross-kicking, targeting England in the backfield. They they just they played a more canny game. They were more powerful. Everything they did was better than England. England were beaten in every area of the field. They were making a mountain of errors. They were conceding penalties when they shouldn't have been. They were just under pressure and weren't coping at all. I mean, the, the gulf between the teams was astonishing for a long period of that game. For 60-odd minutes, England were a distant second. Was it the yellow card that is that only when England decide to play rugby? Do they wait for a yellow yeah, card? Yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's, I mean, it's interesting the, the the way the way it sort of changed at the end. There were a couple of factors. Uh, Ian Foster's been, been talking here about the yellow card and just essentially saying England were then able to go side to side and get get the uh, get the space they needed, which meant they started sort of uh, opening New Zealand up, which they hadn't been able to do before. Another factor was that Owen Farrell took a bit of a bang on the leg and seemed to be impeded. So Marcus Smith started taking the kit, the, the goal kicks. And then he also started to sort of step in the first receiver more often and run the game, play flatter, play his own instinctive game. And you could just see what he can do once he's allowed to do that. It just felt a bit more like the 10 was starting to boss the game. And when he was doing that with his instinctive flair, then you, you saw what they're capable of when they just start playing... Heads up rugby, if you like. They looked up, saw, played what they saw in front of them, and they were capable of making openings. I, I think that's my frustration with English rugby is that you are clearly a capable team when you decide to play rugby. Um, why, why don't you do it more often? Why do you wait? To, you know, why don't you play that game? Like you're very good at playing that game, and clearly you, you know, all blacks struggled. Uh, why don't you do it more often? 
That is what all the fans would like to know. <laughs> that's, and sometimes that's what the media would like to know. That's, you know, in the end, they are, they are sort of being coached a certain way. They're being coached in a bit of a structure. They are, they are trying to develop patterns and a sort of an attacking framework. And they also maintain they are holding certain things back for the World Cup, which I think most of us sort of disagree with the principle of. You've got to build up your game, add the layers and naturally establish some momentum going to the tournament rather than having some sense of playing a game of sort of secrecy and hiding things away. There's just no, I, I just don't see the point of that. I don't, I don't agree with the argument. Um, I think you've got to establish your, your full range of your attacking game as best you can and drill it and drill it in proper test matches. So, um, but yeah, it, it keeps coming back to that same point when they're sort of forced into a corner and they're under pressure and you just see them go, right, instead of now setting rucks, setting caterpillar rucks, box kicking, chasing, going through our routines, going through our process, slowing everything down, they just go heads up, play. We're going to spread it wide from deep, go, go, go. It is frustrating to all of us watching yeah. that that is not the, the, the instinctive go-to option. Yeah. Is, was it, was it um, the English set piece didn't seem to... Uh, factor today that you know normally that's their weapon is that a concern going forward to next year well I mean on on the one hand they picked the team to try and sort of get by in the set piece in terms of they didn't pick a a line out jumper six they they've been favoring a lock who plays six uh, at blind side they didn't do that this time they picked more of a sort of a mixed up balanced uh, you know more mobile back row which in theory you know gave them more weapons in open field but at the same time they were they were sort of probably hamstrung a bit in the line out so they were sort of it was a bit of a holding operation in the line out the scrum has just not been dominant for a while new zealand i think have have come through their own sort of rebuilding process scrum wise and seem to have really got their act together and they they had the upper hand in the scrum and england have had some problems there and it's sort of you know they've got matt proudfoot in the coaching staff who oversaw the monstrous Springbok scrum at the last World Cup, but he doesn't have the beast who he had uh, when he was with the Springboks. So, um, you know, England have got a decent scrum, but they are by no means dominant against the best teams. Just um, going back to the the decision to kick the ball out, um, Chris, and I know that they've tried to explain it away, but for for me, the, the reasoning doesn't make any sense because prior to that, um, they'd been in a similar field position and taken the risks to score two tries. So uh, it's a head-scratcher, isn't it? Because it really, what they're saying is, is they contradicted what they did in the last two plays. Yeah, I mean, essentially, they got to the point where having chased, they'd, they'd gained something. They had a, a partial result, didn't they? So all of a sudden, they had something to lose, whereas up until then, the whole reason they'd gone for broke... And, and had some success by by sort of being daring is because they were chasing, they were behind, and they were just playing catch-up rugby. And with that mentality, they they created the chances. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of coming at this from the same direction as you and most other people. I would like to have seen them go for it, and I believe some of the England players on the field would have liked to have seen them go for it. Um, essentially, the, the decision-makers in there decided that they had to weigh up the risk and they feared because they've been on the wrong side of the referee most of the game. And this isn't a, this isn't a sort of an English view blaming the referee at all. I mean, I think he was very sort of prominent in the game, shall we say, but there's no blame there. But I'm just saying, I think they felt they'd come on the wrong side of him quite a lot. And they were fearful that all it would take was one minor sort of uh, 
tiny little um, step out of line at a ruck and that's it. And they lose the game with a, you know, New Zealand awarded a kick in front of the post. So, yeah, they just, they made a very calculated decision. And I think it went down badly because I'll tell you what, honestly, this place was absolutely bouncing when they leveled the match. You know, they're going to take the restart and the place was absolutely rocking. We could feel the stand moving. Everyone was jumping around going crazy. And you think this is it. If they go for the jugular and win it here, the, the building's going to fall down. I mean, it was incredible, crazy sort of scenes here. And you sort of wish in a sort of emotional way that they would see it through and have the bravery to go for it. And actually asked about it hypothetically, Ian Foster said he would always want his team to roll the dice and go for it. And I, and I believe the All Blacks would always go for it. Um, I just had a bit of a chuckle there, Chris, when you said um, that it was daring rugby. That's pretty much just what we call rugby over here, where we attack regardless, <laughs> no matter what. <laughs> Good point. Well made. <laughs> hey, Chris, um, uh, any word on TJ Peronada's injury? You were obviously at the post-matches. Uh, that ankle looked pretty bad. We weren't sure here if it was an Achilles or an ankle. Uh, have you heard anything? I'll be honest, it didn't come up in the in, in the main press conference that I was sat in. And I, I think there may have been some further interviews which we weren't part of because the team sort of separated a bit. So I'm not sure, I'm afraid, what the what the update is on that. Yeah, and it's, oh, sorry, Steve. I'm I just feeling like obviously uh, it would have been pretty amazing as an English spectator at Twickenham uh, that last nine minutes of play was, was pretty... Uh, do the people have hope going forward to the World Cup next year? Do they Are they hopeful? Do they think they can do it? I think the the overriding feeling is sort of when it all settles down again, there's a lot of frustration because they sort of see that there's a team in there somewhere and they're not really seeing it sort of come to fruition as, as, as they hope. I think there's a lot of impatience. There's a lot of concern that they're not maximising what they have. You know, they're not quite the sum of their parts. There's a lot of players doing a lot of great things domestically, and then they get picked for England and they sort of end up looking like very different players when they play in an England shirt. And there's frustration that there is a belief that there's a lot of talent in there. They're not lacking players. There's a lot of good players in this country. And and I think sometimes the feeling is that's not quite manifesting itself in the uh, in, in the outcome everyone hopes. So I think there'll always be, it's always the same. When they get around to a World Cup, there'll be a lot of sort of a public hype and excitement and everyone, but you know, naturally sort of getting behind them and believing they've got a shot because they're always going to be there or thereabouts a minimum quarterfinal, likely semi-final team. And once you get to that point, it's all on the day and it's, yeah. you know, it's sort of a, a close contest. But, you but certainly, I, I think overall there's a bit of frustration. Definitely. Yeah, you certainly have a good draw. Like uh, you'd be pretty disappointed <laughs> if you didn't make a semi-final. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is it. It's, it's their opening up. I mean, essentially, from, from from my point of view, you just want to spend as much time as you can avoiding France as possible. Um, and that's probably the uh, the main task in the tournament. So, uh, yeah, it's it's there for England to, you know, they, they would imagine, you would imagine they would look at the way the draw set up with their pool and likely quarterfinal and think minimum semifinal is, well, you, the, you guys is won't, the requirement. You won't come up against the top four team in the world right now until until the semifinal. Yeah, exactly. And and also, there's another factor here, which is that Eddie Jones has very much made it clear that he's banking everything on being able to prepare a team to win a World Cup, i.e. all the emphasis, all the onus is on that three-month period when they're in a training camp and they get ready when he has got, he's got proper time with the players. And the message we've repeatedly had is, 
trust me, I will know how to get them ready at that point to win a World Cup. So that he has convinced the RFU, his bosses, that he's the right man to go through that process and win them the trophy they want, which is sort of being used sometimes as an excuse to explain away some of the bad performances and results along the way. And frankly, if they fall a long way short in the World Cup, it would absolutely tarnish the legacy of whatever else he's done because it's all the eggs have been put in that basket, all the emphasis is on that tournament. Yeah, how much pressure is he under? And are the RFU, you know, sort of wholeheartedly buying buying that? I mean, I know that Scott Robertson's up there at the moment. I know he was involved in the England camp when they were down uh, this part of the world playing over in Australia. I mean, any chance there's a, a backroom reshuffle like we saw with the All Blacks, or or even if you know they come out of this uh, end of season two and they lose to South Africa, draw with the All Blacks, beat Japan, and lose to Argentina? Any any chance they pull the trigger? No, I don't think so. Deep down, I don't think so. I, I think I think the RFU um, sort of high command have, have bought the argument that's been given to them about trust me when it comes to the tournament and that they are going to see that through. Partly there's probably a cost implication, partly there's a last minute sort of mad scramble and a feeling of you're panicking when it's almost too late. So I think they have made their decision now. They are sticking with this, but they are already well established in their process of succession planning and there's there's a lot going on behind the scenes in terms of succession planning now it doesn't it doesn't rule out the possibility of staff reshuffles going on in the interim period as the all blacks had but that won't be imposed by the RFU that will be decided by Eddie Jones i think there is a whatever goes on almost it would have to be so severe for there to be any sort of dramatic rethink um yeah you know when they were staring down the barrel in this game those conversations come up and you think, well, if they lose to Argentina, run away with a, 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 a quite a routine game against Japan in the end and then lose the big two at the end of the autumn. That's a pretty bad year. And then and then the sort of uh, the questions come up again and the pressure would come on again. But they sort of slightly got out of jail today. And then it's, you know, the pressure moves to next week. So it doesn't go away, but I don't think he's going anywhere. I think he will be there till the end of the World Cup. Yeah, Chris, all right, mate. And, and just finally, before we let you go, of course, our news out today that Sean Edwards uh, was not offered any sort of contract by England. So he's uh, decided to stay with France until 2027. How's that gone down? Like a lead balloon. Um, I mean, Sean Edwards is an absolute superstar of rugby coaching. He's just... He's a man who knows how to win trophies. He, he wins titles. He's just got an incredible track record, and he's English. And people are astonished that the RFU haven't walked to wherever he lives in the south of France and offered him a contract, whatever money he wants. Like he's just—I I think there's a feeling that their succession planning, and it makes some sense, is to get the, the, the head man in place for the next cycle. Uh, to replace Eddie Jones after the World Cup and then let them decide on their staff. Now, in most cases, that would seem like a fair enough process. But I think the the English rugby public would have Sean Edwards on such a pedestal that they would just want an exception to be made and that they go and appoint him unilaterally in advance of whatever decision they make about the head coach and inform whoever the candidates are that Sean Edwards is a absolute necessity in their staff and and I think most people would have almost assume that that would be the process that England would go after him with whatever money he wanted but he wasn't offered anything and he wants job security as everyone does at the moment and he's he's decided to stay with France and frankly France are riding high and they're probably not going to fade anytime soon so I, I can't blame him for the decision he's he's made a logical move for himself personally he's enjoying the work there 
But yeah, there'll be a lot of questions amongst English fans because they just think he's he's the Messiah. He's the one who could really make a big difference, and they're they're absolutely astonished that the RFU keep failing to go after him. Mm, yeah, it's a head scratch, all right, Chris. Hey, listen, mate, thanks very much for giving us so much time after a match. I know you've probably still got uh, articles to finish, but we really appreciate it. Go well, and uh, look forward to uh, reading what you write about uh, this match, this tour, uh, in the Daily Mail as well, mate. Really appreciate it. Thanks, I'll get back to it. Thanks yeah. a lot. Cheers, mate. Thank you very much. Chris Foy, the uh, head rugby writer at the Daily Mail in the UK. For logbook servicing you can rely on, you need to make the right choice. You need trained professionals who are fully qualified to service your car according to manufacturer's specifications. For real peace of mind and a nationwide warranty, book in or book online at repcoservice.com.